morning. Our first scripture reading is, um, so it's 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of our God. You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Our next scripture reading is Psalm 51 through 6. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him and around him a temper rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim this righteousness, for he is a God of justice. Our gospel reading today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took them, took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Transfiguration is one of those important stories in the life of Jesus, but it's one we tend to forget. We remember Christ's birth because we orient so much of our time around Easter. We remember the last week of Jesus's life and his subsequent resurrection at Easter. Did I say Easter twice? Thank you all for just not saying anything. So we remember Christ's birth at Christmas. We remember Christ's death and resurrection at Easter. But transfiguration is one of those moments that tend to pass us by. But it shows up in three of the four Gospels. It is a pivotal moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. And it's something that we can learn something from today. Before we look at the story this morning, though, let's back up and get a little context on what's going on in Jesus' life first. In Mark's Gospel, we see the story of Jesus feeding the multitudes right before this story. Just like what Alicia taught to us uh, about last week, uh, using only a small amount of food and having many baskets left over, Jesus fed this large swath of people. Now, following this, Jesus immediately does his escape artist act, 
and gets in a boat with the disciples as soon as all these folks are well-fed and want more. Jesus gets in this boat, and they travel to Dalmanutha, which is a fun name, uh, where they're swarmed by Pharisees who come to argue with Jesus. They come asking for a sign to try to test him and to trick him. Jesus is exasperated by this. He sighs and he says, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he gets back in the boat. Now, I love this story because it sounds like something that you'd see in a comedy movie. Like the boat pulls up, they get out, immediately these Pharisees come and yell at him. And he just says, let's not go to Dalmanutha, it's a silly place. And then just gets back in the boat and sails off. They sail off so fast, they don't even have a chance to grab a bite to eat. They just showed up out, you know, in this, in this boat. They've been on the water. They just get back in the boat and keep going. They didn't bring enough food for, for twice the sailing that they anticipated. So the, the, the disciples get halfway across the lake, and they're starving. They're like, all we've got between us is this loaf of bread. And you can hear it in their voice when they're saying this, because it's kind of like they're looking at Jesus with this loaf of bread and said, hey, you remember what you did like an hour ago? Can you do it again? We would really appreciate it. Um, and Jesus gets frustrated. He's already frustrated with these Pharisees. And so his disciples are really doing the same thing to him. They're asking for another sign. Jesus gets frustrated with them and says, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not get it? Do you still not perceive or understand what's going on? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? Do you not remember? So, in the movie, The Lord of the Rings... It's, Sally says, why is he bringing this up? It makes sense, I promise. Uh, I keep bringing Lord of the Rings up because it has so many good examples. Uh, so there's Bilbo Baggins, who's an old, crotchety hobbit, and he's got his friend, Gandalf the Grey. Gandalf is visiting him. And in the Lord of the Rings mythology, Gandalf is what is called a Maiar, which is basically an angel in this world, but he hides himself as an old wizard right and runs around and he carries fireworks with him and everybody just thinks he's just an old guy that does tricks and so does bilbo so even though they're close friends gandalf is just an old wizard to to bilbo and so bilbo tells him this and that's when in the conversation gandalf gets frustrated the room goes dark he suddenly gets larger and he says do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks but that's what the disciples are doing and have been doing to Jesus in so many of these stories. They don't, just don't get it. They see him as somebody who is blessed. They see him as someone who is a good teacher, but they don't see him as somebody who does more than miracles. They don't see him as someone who does more than make multitudes out of bread. They're, they get out of the boat. They park the boat. Um, uh, a miracle happens, he restores sight to the blind, and then they head on to Caesarea Philippi, where the conversation continues on the road. This is a conversation a lot of us probably remember, because Jesus says, who do people say that I am? You can kind of hear him working on them as he asks this question, and because one of the disciples says, John the Baptist, and another one of them says, Elijah. And they say that because both of those folks are prophets. John the Baptist was a prophet that called people to repentance. Elijah was a prophet who did a lot of great things, 
including bringing fire or calling fire from the skies. And so that's what folks are seeing. They're seeing these signs and wonders that Jesus is doing. But he says, but who do you say that I am? Which immediately negates that answer, right? He's like, okay, so they're wrong. So if you were planning on saying that one, pick something else. And so Peter finally starts to pick up what Jesus is putting down. And he says, you are the Messiah. So just like Alicia showed us last week, it takes a while for the disciples to get it. It takes a while for them to finally understand who it is they're spending their time with, who they've dedicated themselves to, who they're learning under. They look at Jesus and they see the miracles he can perform, and they're enamored by those miracles, and they want to perform those miracles as well. But he himself is the miracle. The, he was the bread of life from heaven, the only thing that can truly restore, satiate, and satisfy. In this text, the disciples still see the miracles as, some, as the good part. And they don't really start to realize that Jesus is the reason they're here. And what happens next, when he takes a few of them up on the mountain, that's when the understanding of Jesus as Messiah finally starts to come to its head. So in the text that we read earlier, Jesus takes Peter, John, and James up to the mountain with him. We don't know what they anticipated in this mountain experience. We don't know what was going on with the other disciples. Can you see that conversation? Just saying, hey, you other nine, just go play Parcheesi. Like, we got this for a minute. Take a nap. We don't know what they anticipated, but the text tells us that Jesus just transfigures before them. Now, transfiguration is one of those fancy words. But what it's saying is that he physically and spiritually changes in a way that they can see it. The glory of God is coming through him in a way that is physical and palpable. The text tells us his clothes turned whiter than it was possible for clothes to ever be. In Luke's version of the story, it says Jesus' face literally changes. Jesus is clearly going through a distinct physical and spiritual change that would completely take these disciples off guard. Even more of a surprise is when all of a sudden guest stars appear in Elijah and Moses and start talking to Jesus. Now, Elijah and Moses are very important people from the Hebrew text. Moses, who led the Israelites out of Egypt, who went up to Mount Sinai and received the law from God that would be known. The disciples would know this guy. They've heard his stories. They remember the laws of this text. He's a pivotal feature in their religious upbringing. In their mind, there's few people closer to God than Moses. And Elijah is no different. As a prophet, Elijah brought down fire on Mount Carmel and routed out the Baal worshippers, Ahab and Jezebel. He had such a pivotal, pivotal part of scripture that scripture tells us Elijah doesn't even die. He doesn't die like anyone else. God literally comes and picks him up and takes him to heaven. Nobody else does this in all of scripture. If Moses is a big hero of the religious story, then Elijah would be a superhero. And Peter, poor Peter, starts to get it. He can almost pick up that something's going on. Peter's that kid that 
just starts paying attention in school and raises his hand because he's so proud because he thinks the teacher is going to be like, oh, you get it now. He realizes the gravity of the people that he's seeing in front of them. And he offers to build three dwelling places, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. What Peter's saying here is that Jesus, his rabbi, his teacher, his friend, is on the same level of these two heroes of the faith. Surely this is the right move, right? Surely just as Moses had his mountain at Sinai and Elijah had his Mount Carmel, this is Jesus's mountain. But we do this all the time as Christians. Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. The two of them together are almost entirety the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures. Put alongside the life and teaching of Jesus Christ, you have these two texts which basically represent the Old and New Testament. So often as Christians, we hold this book up and say something along the lines of, well, you know, the Bible clearly says, or the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. We hold this book up, all of it, at the same height, putting it all on the same flat plane. But just like Peter, we do right to listen to the rebuke that comes from the heavens. When God says, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. What Peter is missing here is really the same thing the disciples were missing on the way to this mountain. Even when he believes Jesus is the Messiah, he believes that means he's another in a line of heroes and prophets that God is using to fulfill God's plan for God's people. What Peter fails to realize is that those people that came before and everyone that's come after, all those heroes of the faith were at best pointing us to Jesus. Through the law and the prophets, the people of God have tried to understand what God wants them to be, to do, to believe, but they kept falling short. They kept misunderstanding. They kept misinterpreting, and they kept mislabeling God. As important as words and stories are, none of them can fully explain God. It was the reason that the word of God came and dwelt among us, the perfect representation of what God wants to say to us. One of my favorite pastors and writers is a guy named Brian Zahn, and he says this so succinctly when he says, Jesus is what God has to say. To us in the church today, this is a, has a very distinct meaning. We have this collection of books that we call the Bible. They are a beautiful set of tools that can point us to the living word of God through the life of Jesus. It shows us the story of the people of God trying to understand God. Sometimes that leads them to claim God did something that God didn't or wouldn't do. Sometimes it leads us to understand something that God or as something that God ordained, even if God didn't or wouldn't ordain it. Sometimes it's a story of people missing the mark. So God allowed God's word, God's son, God in the flesh 
to live among us and show us once and for all the right way to live. These are the words we're to lean on. These are the words we're to etch into our hearts. Just being in this book doesn't make words holy, but what they do do is point us to the Holy One. It's an important book, but we're not Biblicists. We're Christians. I know that might sound like a surprising statement, but it's the only way to look at the text with how often Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say. Jesus was pushing back against the very holy text he was steeped in. Now last week, Elisha showed us a story where Jesus denied being the new Moses and said that he was rather the new bread of life, the new manna. Jesus is here to do something completely different from Moses, from Elijah, from David, from Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. He's not there to add on or amend a system already in place, but rather he is there to show them what God has looked like all along. The text makes it very clear what direction we're supposed to go in this conversation. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Today we have an opportunity to come to the table and experience communion. And this communion that we get to take part in with the Son of God who comes to show us the way to be like God. Just like Peter, James, and John, it is through this relationship with Jesus that we have the opportunity to see the change that God wants to make in the world. We can witness a transfiguration as what we see with our eyes changes to what God sees with God's eyes. In doing so, we might begin to see even our own countenance change. We might get transfigured ourselves. We can grab this opportunity to connect with God and in so doing change ourselves, our church, and the world. I get a newsletter from a speaker named Jonathan Martin. And this morning, at like 2 o'clock in the morning, the newsletter came in. And it really kind of encapsulates what we're talking about today. He writes, All the major religions rightly claim that God, on some level, can be known through nature, reason, and experience. But the peculiar Christian claim is that the Christ is known through eating and drinking. Jesus is the God whose crumbs get beneath your tongue. The body of God is offered to satiate our hunger. I've heard it said that Christians, with regards to Scripture, are the people of the book. But it is not so, or at least not primarily. There is something more primal to the Christian faith, even than the book. We are the people of the bread. Let us pray.